Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the immediate aftermath of the unrest in Kazakhstan. We're going to talk about the talks in Geneva between the U.S. and Russia, and some interesting takeaways from those talks on both sides. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, 50 people have been killed in gunman attacks in the Kebi state of Nigeria. This is a state in the northwest of the country. As the violence, the sort of the spillover violence from the, great, the Second Great African War, uh, continues to rack the country. Four Jordanian soldiers, uh, those are soldiers from the country of Jordan, uh, four of them have been shot, and of them, one has been killed in a shootout with drug smugglers along the Syrian border. President Putin of Russia is set to meet with Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, in one-on-one talks, likely about security in the Middle East, and probably in particular security around Syria, Russia's ally. And Afghanistan. Also Afghanistan. So there's that. And the anti-mandate and anti-lockdown protests have grown around the world. Uh, And they continue to grow. And in France's case in particular, they're they're interesting. Where uh, Macron goes out of his way and he says, we're going to piss you off. He wants wants to piss him off. And, well, they're they're very upset about that. We'll see what that does to him in his presidential election, though. Which is coming up in just a couple months. April, I believe. Either April or May. But I think it's April. And that's not a good look for a presidential campaign, I'll tell you that much. But who knows? Maybe he'll still pull out the W. We'll just have to wait and see. We haven't heard much. Well, I haven't seen much from the opposition. But uh, I imagine we'll be seeing a bit more of the opposition candidates as we come up upon the actual day of the elections in France. And that'll be interesting, the results of them. So we'll keep our eyes on France. The former Haiti senator, well, a former Haiti senator, uh, who was suspected of involvement with the assassination of Haiti's president last year, has been arrested in Jamaica. And he's probably in the process of being deported as we speak. And we'll see what happens to him. And if he has any relevant information that comes out. In the meantime, Hezbollah and Amal uh, have ended their boycott of cabinet sessions in Lebanon. So this is the local Lebanese uh, branch of Hezbollah. And they've ended their boycott of cabinet sessions, as they are part of the government there, over the issue of the economic crisis. So they're sort of circling the wagons to try to deal with the situation instead of infighting, which is good. Meanwhile, America's new envoy to the Horn of Africa, David Satterfield, is set to visit Sudan, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Ethiopia. And I find this very interesting, how all of a sudden we have a special envoy to the Horn of Africa, 
uh, right after China appoints their envoy to the Horn of Africa. That's very interesting. I, I swear, people are very desperate for Cold War 2.0. They, they really want this thing to stick. Now, I don't. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, we came close enough to killing our damn selves as a species the first time around. So I don't get why people are so eager to hop into a second one. Eh, but it is what it is, I guess. Meanwhile, the UN Rights Office reports that Ethiopian airstrikes in Tigray have killed over 108 people this month alone, and we're only halfway through the month, so... Wow. So, over 108 people have died due to the airstrikes, and I gotta say, as bad as that is, you know war it seems that ethiopia is they've changed up their strategy and now they're using air superiority to their fullest advantage as now it seems to me just from what i've gathered from hearing stories it seems that they've halted the tigray advance for now because if you remember there was some panic a couple months back that tigray forces were about to just walk into the Ethiopian capital and end the war. <laughs> but um, it seems now Ethiopia's managed to hold the line at just the right moment because the, their capital was getting uh, in danger, you know. And now we have a... It seems we have somewhat of a stalemate, although we'll see if the stalemate lasts. That's the thing. And I'll say... It was, it was looking a bit hairy there for a second, but they've managed to do it. And I imagine that because they're on the defensive now, the rough terrain of Ethiopia, and they're, it's all hills and mountains in Ethiopia, because they're on the defensive now, the, the rough terrain works in their advantage. And because Tigray is on the offensive, not just on the offensive, they're on the offensive outside of Tigray itself. So you have the... Dual advantages of no home turf advantage and defense in rugged terrain. So I believe that combined with air superiority has given them what they've needed to sort of turn the tide. Would that be the right term? I, I don't know if they've quite turned the tide yet. In some areas they have. They've been pushing in the Tigray just a little bit. But I wouldn't... I wouldn't quite call this a turning of the tide, more so they've just stopped it. And that's the fairest way to put this. They've stopped it, but, but, another thought that has crossed my mind was that this could just be due to logistical issues on Tigray's part, because again, they're on the offensive and they're outside of Tigray. Fighting an insurgency is easy in your own territory, but going from that to being on the offensive in someone else's territory is a bit harder to do because you don't have home field advantage anymore. You don't necessarily know the terrain as well. You don't have the supplies and the the compliant population, if you will, on your side to help keep your war machine going. You're in hostile territory now. So given that the Tigrayans only just rebelled, even though they are pretty good, they are very good fighters, the logistics 
might just be at their end of what they're capable of right now. Maybe that'll change in the future, but I'll just I'll just leave that on the table as a possibility because we really don't know. But from what we can gather and theorize, that could be a factor as well. Because again, Ethiopia is mountains and hills. So logistics are probably a strain anyway. But that's Ethiopia. And we'll see if Ethiopia's delayed the inevitable or if they've turned the tide. Meanwhile, Belarus and Russia are planning joint military drills next month. And the Iranian diplomats that Arabia gave permission to fill positions in the OIC headquarters in Saudi Arabia, they have arrived in the country and are now filling their positions. So this is a huge step for the de-escalation between Arabia and Iran and a great leap for one small step for man and one great leap for Islam, I guess. But that is the rapid fire news and we'll get into the meat in just a second. All right, let's get into the meat. So, the situation in Kazakhstan, I believe it's fair to report, is now pretty firmly under the control of the Kazakh government. And the rioters are being arrested by the thousands. The death toll has been put at around 225 people by Kazakhstan, the government. And the CSTO peacekeeping force has largely went home. This incident and the collective response to it by the members of the CSTO has also demonstrated, I would say, the merits of the alliance for the entire world to see because everyone was looking at Kazakhstan and then all of a sudden Kazakhstan calls on its allies and boom like that it's all this unrest is put down and then the allies go so a demonstration of what the CSTO is capable of in crisis situations and I guess a reaffirmation to everyone who's already in the CSTO that oh wow our alliance functions properly and we can depend on it so a good morale boost to everyone within the CSTO and definitely a morale boost to Kazakhstan and a good bit of information for NATO, I guess. I mean, it's good to see what the other alliance is capable of when, you know, they're hit with a crisis situation that comes out of the blue. But I'll say that the CSTO does stand in contrast to NATO. Uh, well, actually, let me go back. I've seen a good increase in the interests in this organization, that organization being the CSTO, uh, ever since they deployed troops to Kazakhstan to help them. And again, uh, I'd say that the CSTO stands in contrast to NATO. I say that because the CSTO response to the crisis in Kazakhstan was both immediate, right after Kazakhstan asked for help, they were almost immediately granted their request for their allies to deploy troops. And then the deployment of those thousands of troops, around 5,000, to aid their ally Kazakhstan was swift. It was just as fast as the approval itself, basically. Uh, you had the Russian paratroopers, you had troops from Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Armenia, and Belarus, all coming in. It was very swift. The entire process was streamlined and orderly 
and fast, well, rapid, I should say, which means a lot. Especially in, say, a combat scenario where they would have to do that to defend their borders. But this is sort of like a... This can be viewed as sort of a test run to what the CSTO would be capable of in a wartime scenario. But they're not at war right now, so this is more of a... This is a civilian unrest thing. But the logistics and the feat of logistics that enabled them to respond the way they did are very relevant towards the military aspect of this alliance, especially because it was troops that they were mobilizing to deal with this unrest, not, say, firefighters and policemen. So, the response, and all the skills necessary to make that response happen the way it did, are very relevant for a potential conflict scenario with someone like, oh, I don't know, NATO. So... The immediate response, the swift deployment of troops, and then the swift putting down of the unrest, followed by the swift withdrawal. They, Kazakhstan is still Kazakhstan. They're, well, yes, Kazakhstan is still Kazakhstan. And they have their allies behind them. They haven't been annexed, is what I'm saying. Even if they are deep within Russia's sphere of influence, they haven't been annexed. So... Uh, incredible. That's some incredible optics for this alliance. And again, I say it stands in contrast to NATO. Because, after all that, it now leaves sort of an unintended question. Because I'm sure NATO was the last thing on the minds of the people who pulled this off in the CSTO. But because they've managed to do this, and because they are a military alliance just as NATO is... It leaves the unintended question of whether NATO could do something similar if the situation called for it. Now, for all the shit that I give NATO, I do believe that NATO could pull off what the CSTO did. However, I am doubtful, incredibly doubtful, that it would be done in as efficient a manner as was demonstrated by the CSTO. I believe this primarily due to the logistical constraints that everyone who isn't America suffers from. Uh, in short, if something like this were to happen in... Uh, well, I mean, let me, excuse me. If something like what happened in Kazakhstan were to happen in Germany, and the German government asked for NATO assistance, it would almost certainly be a purely American and German affair with look, token troops from, say, the UK. I'm not entirely sure if the NATO response would be as rapid or as efficient. The Americans could get there in an instant. With the snap of our fingers, we could get there. Just as Russia could get to Kazakhstan. But how would the other allies respond? Would they be as rapid, or would they take their time? If they were rapid, would they be able to get their troops there in, you know, rapid succession, or would it, or would it, there would be a delay? I do not know, and I guess the only way we would know for certain is if something like what happened in Kazakhstan happened in a NATO ally, and that ally asked for help. But, um, so far, NATO doesn't ask 
for the Alliance to put down unrest. So, I guess we won't quite get to see that. But, it's definitely the question that is left on the table, even if, again, it's unintentional. Now, and I, I'll stress that I do believe NATO could do it, just maybe not as efficiently as the CSTL has demonstrated. But again, it would take a demonstration to see that for certain, and to know that for certain. But given that the nature of these two alliances are different, in that NATO is supposed to be a more cooperative effort, whereas the CSTO is, by design, a Russian protectorate of the former Soviet space, that would mean that these two alliances, should they come to blows over, say, Ukraine, I would argue that it is the Russian military alliance that would have the greater advantage, at least in the start, they would have the greater advantage in terms of the cohesion of their military forces. Uh, again, the response, the rapid deployment of troops, and no one bumped into each other, no one shot at each other. It was swift and orderly. And there is doubt as to whether NATO could do it as efficiently as the CSTO. So, when you have a response like that that's rapid, and I'll go back to my point where I mentioned that doing what they did in Kazakhstan the logistical feats and all the all the talents and skills required to make that happen are very applicable to the military space. If that's the response that you can expect for, say, civil unrest, then certainly you could get a similar response of a couple thousand troops in the outbreak of a war. And in the beginning, when the battle lines aren't quite drawn yet, that could be the difference between setting yourself up for a victory and setting yourself up for, well, defeat. Either you get set up for victory or the enemy gets set up for victory, and one of you is going to lose unless you can turn the tide. And the early days of a war are the best time to set yourself up for success like that, even if it's not necessarily long-term success and you still lose in the end, like Germany, they were on French soil for World War One. But they lost. But those early days matter. Those first few hours and days of a conflict, they matter a lot. And if the CSTO is able to mobilize their active duty troops that quickly and deploy them with that kind of speed, well, that means they have an incredible advantage on their side in terms of logistics and speed. Because you can't emphasize speed enough, especially when you have the logistics to support it. And with increasing talk of conflict over Ukraine, uh, primarily between Ukraine and Russia, uh, that's the CSTO is definitely going to be a factor, although I'm pretty sure the Russians would more than likely fight their war themselves. And it's sort of how... Uh, I guess it, it really is Russian NATO, you know, because America fights its wars itself. We don't we don't call in NATO every time we get into a war. Russia's the same way. They're sort of the backbone of the alliance in exactly the same way the United States is. 
except we now know for certain that the CSTO members carry their weight when the time comes, and it is uncertain if NATO will do the same, um, especially if when we look at the drills that we did and the re the recent drills we did in it was either Romania or Bulgaria, but it was pretty messy and pretty unorganized those drills. So and those are drills, and what the CSTO did was an actual response. So there's a very big difference in what those mean and a very big difference in the skill required to pull them off and a very big difference in the results that can therefore be expected of the two based off of NATO drills and CSTO's response. So uh, it looks like the ball is in NATO's court the Russian alliance is looking pretty strong these days. And who knows, maybe Ukraine will end up in as, as an unconsensual member of that alliance, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Very, very important. But also, one of the things that may come of this with all the new attention being given to the CSTO, as I'm sure a lot of people didn't know what the CSTO was before the incident with Kazakhstan, but... Another thing I'm now thinking about in the uh, <clears throat> in the aftermath of Kazakhstan, the Kazakhstani crisis, is whether there'll be new additions to the CSTO in the near future. Again, they've demonstrated what the alliance is capable of, what they do when uh, sort of the protocol that you go through when you need help. You, you just ask, you call You call a meeting, you ask for help. Whoever's in charge of the alliance, uh, right now it's Armenia. They have, they have the presidency, it's a rotating presidency. You ask for help. Whoever has the pro presidency uh, approves or denies. And if they approve, the member states deploy the troops. They help you out, you get a grip on the situation, and then their troops go home. So, everyone keeps their sovereignty. Everyone backs each other up. It is collective security. So, given what the CSTO has demonstrated on the world stage with when all eyes were on them, maybe there'll be new additions to the CSTO in the future. Uh, most likely, within the former Soviet space itself, uh, as I'm... The, the alliance was made basically for the former Soviet states. So it's more likely than anyone else uh, that it's probably going to come from that region. So like Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, those countries. Georgia, maybe, you know, Georgia's uh, still pretty upset <laughs> about Russia sponsoring South Ossetia and Abkhazia within Ru Georgian territory. But, again, that's what, that was a powerful display of what the CSTO is capable of and may be appealing to some of the former Soviet states, especially if they find themselves in a crisis and they start looking for friends. Better to have those friends in advance than to be scrambling for them later on. <clears throat> because either you have the deal with the CSTO or you 
try to negotiate with Russia directly for them to intervene, but that means negotiating with Russia directly for them to intervene. <laughs> and it would it would be a pretty big win for the alliance, especially with threats of joining NATO being made by Sweden and Finland uh, recently. And again, I'm sure many former former Soviet states, excuse me, uh, might find the Russian alliance a bit more attractive now. Uh, a good number of them were used to be a part of the CSTO, but left. Maybe now they're reconsidering the merits of the alliance. Especially given that Russia didn't just occupy Kazakhstan indefinitely, and, you know, Kazakhstan gets to keep its sovereignty. And if that's how things go down in the CSTO then perhaps the former Soviet states might find this alliance more attractive now as a guarantee of their sovereignty from foreign and even domestic threats rather than a concession of their sovereignty to Russia instead of having Russia as an enemy or even a neutral force you have them as an ally and that's a pretty big shift in your strategic position Especially if you live near Russia. So, definitely something to keep in mind. Now, maybe none of them join at all and they just stay where they are. But, a lot of attention is being given to the CSTO right now. So, we'll see what happens in the future. And I'm sure that Big Brother Russia would be more than happy to have all the new members. So long as they're close by, you know. Because that makes it easy to defend them. Uh, I don't know if they allow for, say, Madagascar to join the CSTO. But we'll see where this alliance goes in the future. And if NATO is able to be just as efficient and swift in similar situations. Definitely things to look out for. Alright, now let's get into the U.S.-Russia talks that took place uh, last week. The U.S. and Russia met in Geneva for talks, primarily over Ukraine, uh, well, majorly over Ukraine and the Belarus-Poland border. These talks have been sort of hyped up for weeks now, ever since the Biden-Putin summit, in fact. But now that they've happened, and some interesting ideas, some interesting things have been said, and some interesting ideas are being floated, and some interesting takeaways are they have been taken away. So, let's get into it, and we'll start with the U.S. side. The U.S. and by proxy NATO have refused the Russian request slash ultimatum, depending on how you view it, the request of guaranteeing no more NATO expansion towards Russia's borders. They flat out refused that. They treated it like a non-starter. The talks sort of broke down. Not in, not in the way that gets you uh, a disaster or an all-out war. But in the, meaning, in the meaning that not so much s substance was talked about, you know, wasn't, there wasn't much of substance that was agreed upon, or much of substance that had progress made on it. The U.S. side views the talks as being rather inconclusive, 
and the relations between the U.S. and Russia have been worsening uh, pretty rapidly since. So, the talks themselves weren't necessarily a disaster, but the results of these talks are definitely leaning towards being a disaster. There are now, uh, since the talks ended, there are now accusations by U.S. intelligence that Russia has even prepared a false flag attack on their own troops to justify a war with Ukraine, j just in case you, you thought things might have been getting better between the two countries. Uh, there are also rumblings of sponsoring an insurgency in Ukraine against Russia in the event, and I would add the highly likely event, that Ukraine lost in a war with Russia over the Donbass. So, there's lots of talk about conflict in the near future, but very little talk about the talks themselves. Again, not much of substance seems to have been discussed. Um, well, not much of substance was agreed upon, because there's plenty of substance that was discussed. It's just... Nothing was agreed upon, and nothing, there was no progress made, and that seems to be the key issue, leading to these new problems that have popped up over the same issue, Ukraine. It seems to me that America's primary takeaway from these talks has been that the, uh, the situation in Ukraine is going to get worse, and we need to prepare for that. And I believe a very similar conclusion has been drawn by Russia itself as well. So I'll just go back here to the whole idea of sponsoring an insurgency in Ukraine against Russia. Um, I don't, I don't think that would be successful. I mean, the western parts of Ukraine, as you come up on the Carpathian Mountains, now that is an ideal area for, say, an insurgency. But Ukraine is flat. They're wide open, and the only rough terrain on Ukraine is the river, the Dnieper River that runs through the middle of the country, and the cities. But those are, the, the cities in particular are obviously going to be places that would be under a, a Russian occupation, and the countryside is going to, can be patrolled with air and drones so there's there's not much room for an insurgency in ukraine the terrain of the country just really doesn't support it you can have a rebellion sure but it's gonna get put down pretty quickly and plus ukraine at this point is pretty worn out they're pretty burnt out they they're really tired of the war in the east of their country, the war that they're losing, by default, if they're not winning, they're, they're losing because these are breakaway republics. So if you don't win, you lose. Whereas if you're the breakaway republics in the Donbass, even if you don't win, so long as you don't lose, you win. If that, if that makes any sense. <coughs> but the Ukrainian people are really war-weary, so if Russia were to come along and put an end to the fighting, I don't I don't think many of them, as opposed to Russia as uh, the western half of the country might be, 
I don't think they would rise up in arms against Russia in any significant way or any prolonged way either. Because again, the insurgency would have to go on until either Russia just chose to leave or Ukraine and maybe an alliance drove Russia out. But that would take more, that would take even more time. That would mean the fighting and the war would have to go on for even longer. And the Ukrainians are, they've checked out already. They've checked out. They're already demoralized. And a large-scale defeat of their military by Russia would probably just be the last nail in the coffin and they would surrender it en masse and just accept the new Russian government. I don't see an insurgency in Ukraine. Uh, maybe... If Russia had just outright invaded from the beginning in 2014, like they did with Crimea, if they would have gone into Ukraine itself, well, then maybe we would have that insurgency. But at this point in the game, with how things have developed so far, uh, there doesn't seem to be the energy in the population for an insurgency. Definitely not a prolonged insurgency. Or, in that case, a successful one either. So, I don't really see a insurgency in Ukraine. Although there's definitely people who are thinking it over, as people in the U.S. military establishment do, with all their weird ideas that don't seem to work. Uh, and this one in particular, I'd say, wouldn't work. The Duran did a... Uh, well, Al Alexander... Alexander... Uh, Mercurius, he did a he he's the lead of the the Duran. He did a video on this, and he goes a bit he goes a lot further into depth than what I've done. So if you want more on that, you can watch his video. You know, it's on YouTube. So uh, I I really don't see an insurgency in Ukraine against Russia. Uh, I I just don't see it. The People of Ukraine are too war-weary, they're too demoralized, and they have lost too much of their energy for an insurgency, especially a prolonged insurgency, and the terrain, the geography that Ukraine exists on doesn't support an insurgency of any kind. And Russia has plenty of troops to put it down. It's not like Russia's exactly lacking for manpower, even with their own shrinking demography at this point. They still have 140-odd million people to Ukraine's roughly 40-something million. It's just not exactly a winning battle there, especially if Russia is able to get the assistance of Russians in Ukraine to bolster the ranks of their population and therefore, they're both of the ranks of their armed forces. I'm pretty sure they would start adding people to their force if they could. Not to mention, I'm pretty sure the rebels in the Donbass would be more than happy to stick it to the Ukrainians who tried to fight an insurgency. So they already have an ally in that sense. And, well, the insurgents would start off with more enemies than one. I just really don't see an insurgency in Ukraine. As much as people would like to hope for it, I do not see it. Uh, and there's also there's also the talk of 
things getting worse in Ukraine. Namely, the there are now accusations I mentioned by the U.S. and by U.S. intelligence that <laughs> that Russia has even prepared a a false flag operation where they're going to attack their own troops. They're going to stage an attack on their own troops and use that as a pretense for an invasion of Ukraine. Um, so there's that too, and. If that were to happen, well, I guess that were to happen, but I don't, I don't really see Russia doing that either, you know, in most of Russia's history, they usually don't, they haven't really done that, they usually, if they want a war, they just, they'll just have their war, they don't, Russia doesn't really play games like that. And quite frankly, they already have the pretense ready to use if they wanted it, which is that they're defending the rebels in the Donbass. And if Ukraine attacks them, well, then Russia has the pretense to attack Ukraine because they've handed out passports and given basically given citizenship to everyone living in the in the Donbass uh, who are in those breakaway republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. If Ukraine were to attack and any one of those people were to die, technically, they have Russian citizenship. Technically, Russia would then have the pretext to defend Russians who are being oppressed in Ukraine. They already have their pretext, especially since the two sides don't stop shelling each other. They just slow down the rate of the bombardments. Russia could at any moment use any one of those artillery bombardments that happens to kill one of the rebels as a pretext for a war in Ukraine. They can go, oh, you killed a Russian civilian fighting for his rights against an oppressive government. We're going to invade. Quite frankly, Russia doesn't need to do a false flag attack on their own troops. They, they already have the pretext. The Cassus Balai is well, alive and well on the contact line between Ukraine and the rebels. And I guess that just goes to show sort of the fundamental misunderstanding of most people in the U.S. and Europe of what exactly this conflict is. People view it as Ukraine against Russia when it's Ukraine against the rebels in Ukraine and Russia is a backer of the rebels. And those are two very separate images, and if you're looking at the wrong one and you start making policies around that, you're going to get some pretty different results. And quite frankly, if you're looking at the first image where you think it's Russia against Ukraine, you're going to get some pretty wrong images, and you're going to get some pretty wrong conclusions that you draw from it. Ukraine bombards... Uh, the republics, the breakaway republics in the east, Russia masses troops because they're defending those republics. But if you miss the context that Russia is defending the rebels, then you get what we've been seeing for the past few months, where it's, oh, Russia's amassing troops on Ukraine's border. They're getting ready for an invasion of Ukraine. And it paints Russia as the aggressor. And which, you know, you could do that. I'm not here to tell you who they are and aren't. But 
I'm here to tell you the crucial context because that's sort of uh, my job. <laughs> but you miss that context. If you don't include the rebels all right, in the calculus, if you don't view the war in Ukraine as a war fundamentally between Ukraine and the rebels, you're missing, uh, I'd say, like a solid half of the context here. And Russia is the other half. But if you don't have that, you're missing a lot of the context, and any conclusion you draw is going to be pretty far off the mark. Which is why we see ideas now of sponsoring insurgencies against Russia and Ukraine in the event that Russia invaded Ukraine, when Russia's not going to invade Ukraine. Which is why we see stories, uh, that's also why we see stories about Russia staging a false flag attack to justify invading Ukraine. They don't need that. Ukraine's at war with people that Russia is backing. Russia is technically at war with Russia's... Uh, not Russia. Ukraine is technically at war with Russian allies at this point. Russia could use that at any given moment as the pretense for a war with Ukraine if they wanted to. So just not having that context of what the war in Ukraine is leads to these pretty weird takeaways that ignore the fundamental reality of what the war in Ukraine is. It's a civil war. And Russia is an outside player backing one of the inside uh, parties. They're backing the rebels, and they've occupied Crimea. It's very similar to what the U.S. is up to in Syria, where we're backing the rebels, and attacks on the rebels, we retaliate with missiles. It's very similar in that regards, but if you don't understand that crucial context of the fact that Ukraine is a civil war, you're gonna you're gonna it's you're just gonna fly over your head. And it seems that it has flown over the heads of many people. But I'll stop ranting about that context. And I'll get on to the Russian side of this equation from the talks in Geneva. Now, Russia, they view the talks also as having been a failure. They don't, they don't view them as inconclusive. They, they view them as a failure. And Russia, because Russia didn't get anything of what they asked for. They didn't even get to talk about it. They basically got shrugged off. And now they're back to where they started from. They're still concerned that NATO will continue trying to expand towards Russia's borders. They're still concerned that NATO will try to include Ukraine into NATO's military infrastructure. And none of those concerns have been addressed. So Russia is exactly where they were before the talks. Uh, with nothing meaningful to look forward to, as nothing of substance was agreed to, and nothing of substance had progress made on it. So, the Kremlin, at this point, they've said that they haven't ruled out potential counteractions to NATO deployments should future talks regarding Russia's security fail. Uh, Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, uh, he stated, quote, We have too much tension on the border, and he's talking about Ukraine. We have too much tension in this part of Europe. It drags more problems automatically. It is extremely dangerous for our continent. Uh, end quote. 
Dmitry Peskov also went on to say, quote, We will be ready to take counteractions if you continue to say, listen, Russians, we're not going to take into account your concerns. NATO will continue to expand. Uh, now we're going, now we're not going to, uh, now we're not going to get NATO to include Ukraine. Oh, goodness, I've, I've completely botched that quote. Let me, <laughs> let me start over. We will be ready to take counteractions if you continue to say, listen, Russians, we're not going to take into account your concerns. NATO will continue to expand. Now, we're not going to add Ukraine to NATO, but with time, legally, it will be possible. We're not going to say that we will not deploy any offensive weapons in Ukraine's territory, and NATO's military infrastructure will stay next to your border, and with time, get even closer. If you tell us that, we will have to do something. And then, quote, there we go, I've given the quote properly now, and we can see that uh, uh, Putin is upset. Russia's upset, and now they're considering their options for conventional and asymmetrical retaliation. And this is sort of a predictable problem from my point of view. Ukraine was always going to be more important to Russia than NATO. And again, there was, there still <laughs> isn't any intention of adding Ukraine to NATO. So, on that point, it seemed like the logical common sense conclusion would be to just say, okay, we'll agree on paper that Ukraine's not going to be a part of NATO. And you just, you just agree to not do something that you already weren't going to do. So uh, I'm lost. All right, if you couldn't tell by now, whenever I talk about this, I'm lost as to what the problem is. When Russia's not being unreasonable when they ask, hey, could you stop expanding your military alliance towards our border? I personally don't see the problem with saying, okay, we won't expand closer to you, and we all just leave each other alone. Uh, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of the hallmark of my foreign policy agenda, you know, leaving people alone, uh, especially in places where America doesn't need to be, like Europe, but... <clears throat> On this particular issue, I don't see what the problem is. Ukraine's not going to be a part of NATO. Russia wants a legal guarantee that Ukraine isn't going to be a part of NATO. And that NATO isn't going to keep expanding towards Russia's borders. Something that NATO promised to do back in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. Everything is already there. But for some reason, we're just, we're just not getting there. So, that's, that's where I stand. I don't see what the problem is, but because NATO has acted this way, where instead of saying, okay, that's a reasonable request, we're not going to expand towards you, they go, Russia doesn't get a veto, and what NATO does, um, Putin's upset, Russia's upset, and now they're considering their options for conventional and asymmetrical retaliation, because now there's talk of Russia not ruling out deploying troops to Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, and that's, again, the signal that I, I say, well, again, that, that's the signal that I've noticed that Russia has gone from being on the defensive 
to being on the counter offensive. And I noticed that shift back when they started making demands or requests, depending on how you look at it, requests for NATO to stop expanding and to put down on paper a, a legal guarantee where they sign a treaty, uh, and I, I call it the restraining order, saying that they're not going to keep expanding towards Russia's borders. When Russia made those demands, I said, oh, snap, they're not just on the defensive anymore. They're making requests. And you don't do that when you're from in a position of weakness either. You do that when you're in a position of strength. So Russia's on the counteroffensive and they're in a position of strength. Um, and I do believe it is fair to say they have a position of strength. Uh, let's be honest. What's NATO going to do if Russia did invade Ukraine? Nothing. Oh, we're going we're gonna to sponsor a partisan war? Because I don't think... We're not going to get troops to Ukraine fast enough to stop at least half of the country from being taken by Russia if that's what Russia really, really wanted to do. <laughs> the Ukraine, most of the Ukrainian army is in the east fighting the rebels and losing... An envelopment would destroy the entire Ukrainian army. And there, there, there would be nothing left, and the population would surrender en masse. There isn't much NATO could do physically to actually help Ukraine in anything other than a, a futile resistance sort of effort. So, I really don't see... Us being able to defend Ukraine, uh, let alone fighting a war with Russia over the issue. So, Russia, it is fair to say that on this issue, they are in a position of strength, especially now when they know that their military alliance is functioning at full efficiency. They know that their, their back is secure, which means they can focus on their front. Central Asia is on lockdown. The Caucasus are on lockdown. Belarus is a firm ally and is being driven closer to Russia by the second. Russia can put all their attention on Ukraine. They are in a position of strength, I would say. And I said it back then when they started making their requests for NATO not just to stop, but to basically sign a restraining order saying that they would stop. I said back then that this is a counteroffensive, not just defensive. Now they're talking about not ruling out, because they haven't said that they would, they're not ruling out, deploying troops to Cuba and Venezuela, and I guess that's just a jab at NATO saying that they're going to leave the door open for Ukrainian membership in NATO. They're not going to they're not going to rule out the possibility of <laughs> Ukrainian membership in NATO. And Russia's like, well, well I guess now we're not going to rule out deploying troops to Cuba and Venezuela. And that's a stick at America, who's sort of the primary adjutant right now. <laughs> because we could put this issue to rest if we wanted to, and we could do it unilaterally too. It's just that we've decided not to. And now we're in this mess. But, uh, 
uh, well, I don't believe that Russia does really intend on putting troops in Cuba and Venezuela. At least for now, they don't. We'll see if that changes. They've just, you know, left the option open. They've left the door open, if you will. But if they did follow through on that course of action, it would undoubtedly send America into a panic. And the people, the absolute light bulbs who got us into that mess would be the last ones to see it coming. It's, it always works that way. The people who get us into these issues never seem to understand how we got there when we get there and never, ever manage to find blame in what they did in getting us. They never seem to, they never seem to piece together their responsibility into getting us into those unruly situations like the people who were responsible for the pullout of Afghanistan who had months in advance to get us out, and even a four-month extension, because we were supposed to be gone in May. We were, supposed to be, well, we were supposed to be gone by May, May 1st. Moved it to September 1st, and waited till the last possible moment to pull out the troops and left the civilians behind and a whole bunch of military equipment behind. And none of the people who got us into that situation have found blame amongst themselves for not doing their job mm. so if russia did deploy troops to ukraine not to ukraine to cuba and venezuela the people who were so adjutant in leaving the door open for nato membership for ukraine they would not piece together their role in creating that scenario um so, the situation, basically, is a lot more complicated than it needs to be, quite frankly. And the blame lies primarily with NATO for refusing to stop expanding to Ru towards Russia. Again, it's not an unreasonable request. But America and NATO, by default, have they've said no. Russia said, hey, please stop expanding towards our borders. NATO and America say no. So now we're all on edge about the war in Ukraine escalating into a general European war. And I'll, I'll just make the point, because uh, I, I, I've shat on NATO enough. I, don't, I could ask where the German army is. I could ask where the UK Navy is. I could just flat out say that Germany doesn't have an army and the UK doesn't have a navy. If they do have a navy, well, it hasn't stopped the migrants from getting across the English Channel, so I don't expect... I don't know what you're expecting them to do in the South China Sea. But I could do that, you know, and I, I could run through the whole list of NATO countries who I find utterly useless in this alliance, this uh, dead weight. But I'm not going to do that. This time, I'm not going to do that. Uh, instead, <coughs> excuse me, instead, I'll just make the point. Why are we, the United States of America, talking about war in Ukraine when we should be talking about how we're going to improve our relationship with Venezuela? Why are we talking about how we're going to defend Taiwan when what we should be talking about that's how we're going to normalize relations with Cuba. These are countries that matter to America. 
because of how close to home they are. Cuba is 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Cuba will always be more important to America than Ukraine. And the fact that Cuba and Venezuela were the first things that came out of Russia's mouth as a potential sticking it to America option shows that that's a strategic vulnerability. That's a liability. Leaving these two countries out in the wind and in a hostile manner towards the United States rather than, you know, a normalization of relations with them, which is fully possible, you know. All we'd have to do is undo the embargo on Cuba and recognize Maduro as the official government of Venezuela and we'd be on the right track. We'd, we'd be on the right track. It wouldn't get us all there all the way, but we'd be on the right track and if we pursue the policy of leaving people alone, well, trade relations would improve and with time and a normalization of relations again, with time, things would get better and we wouldn't have these loose ends, these geopolitical loose ends right next to our home, especially Cuba. These are places that matter to America. Russia knows that, which is why they were the first things that came out of their mouth. They didn't say, oh, what if we start deploying troops to to Africa? What if we start deploying troops to uh, Palestine? What if we started deploying troops to North Korea and all these places? They didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't bring up any of those. They said Venezuela and Cuba. Because even the Russians understand that the countries in the Americas will always take precedent over anyone else. In the eyes of Americans, anyway. In the eyes of America, the Americas come first. Regardless of what we're doing, we will drop whatever it is we're doing to handle our neighborhood when it becomes a, a problem for us. But that we that wouldn't even be a chink in our armor if we were focused on American interests. And uh, again, this comes back to the theme of the past few episodes. We're not pursuing American interests, which is how we get into these weird, wacko situations where we're talking about war in Ukraine when we could be normalizing normalizing our relations with Cuba and Venezuela and not having threats made to deploy troops to them. Well, not threats. They're just leaving the option open, you know? They're leaving the door open, you know? They're not gonna... They're not gonna say that they won't do it, but they're just gonna keep that option available. And, you know, that shouldn't be the case. You know, we should have good relations with our neighbors. But we're not pursuing American interests, so that is not on the agenda for America, unfortunately. Uh, but, again, these are things that actually matter to America, even if we're, you know, not acting like they are until they suddenly become a problem. These are things that, these are things that matter to America. These are countries that actually matter for America, and it is actually in American interests to mend the relations with these with these two cuz regardless of what happens in Ukraine we will always 
have to live with Cuba and Venezuela in some way, shape, or form. Because they're always going to be there. Especially Cuba. They're right there, 90 miles off the coast of Florida. These places will always take... The Americas, in general, will always take priority and precedent over anything that happens in Asia or Africa or the Middle East or Europe. The Americas will always come first. And... Quite frankly, I believe our foreign policy, foreign policy, foreign policy should reflect that. But alas, our poor relations with these countries have become loose ends in American foreign policy, in American foreign relations, and they're now being considered, not quite threatened, but they're being considered for use as tools against us. And I believe that should we follow an American foreign policy, and I mean that in the sense that we're looking out for American interests, not, say, European or Asian interests, or Middle Eastern interests. If we're looking out for America and not Israel, South Korea, Taiwan, Poland, and Germany, and Ukraine, if we're looking out for America, these wouldn't even be issues, quite frankly. Especially if we pursue a policy of leaving people alone on top of it. But. Things are the way they are. And for now, at least on that end, things don't appear to be changing. But maybe the threat will push for change. Uh, the threat will cause people to push for change. Maybe a normalization of relations with Cuba and Venezuela. Not entirely sure about that. The mood in America is shifting pretty sharply against socialism, but we'll see how that translates into the foreign policy. Hopefully we're still able to have good relations with our neighbors, but uh, only time will tell, uh, and really the, the end of the political paradigm shift will allow me to see, but for now, we're focused on things that really don't really matter to America, but matter to other people. So we're there. We're in Ukraine, and the situation is devolving and devolving fast. The CSTO is a powerful force. Well, the questions of NATO, whether or not NATO can live up to their, their little brother. <laughs> and lots of talk of conflict in Ukraine but regardless of what happens in Ukraine uh maybe there maybe there'll be a, a actual partisan uprising as some are hoping for I don't see it but that is all I have for you today I'm just I'm speaking really slowly cuz I'm going over my notes again just to make sure I grabbed everything that I wanted to talk about, but I think I've covered all my bases. Uh, yes. I believe I have covered all my bases, and next week we should have something on the... Uh, no, that'll be the week after that. I was going to say that next week we should have something on Libya's elections, but that's going to happen the day after next week's podcast. So the week after that, we'll be able to talk about what went down or 
if the elections get delayed again, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but that's all I have for you today. I do, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world and the dynamics in it are changing, folks. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.